electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Contessa Brewer in for Brian Sullivan. Right now on Last Call, call it the home sweet home trade. Shares on a tear for companies even tangentially related to housing. Are tumbling rates about to trigger the next boom? Once battered stocks roar back, what's really fueling their turnaround? And it may not be what you think. Surging markets, falling polls, why the gulf is growing between voters and Bidenomics. Hey, Bob, you're going to have some company. Disney's epic proxy battle with Nelson Peltz takes a stunning twist. Plus, defunding the Ivy League, how Congress may step in over an anti-Semitism backlash. And the tipping point for tipping. With requests seemingly everywhere, you won't believe how much Americans are cutting back now. All that and more over the next hour. Last Call is up right now. Good evening on the East Coast and good afternoon out West. I'm Contessa Brewer. First up on Last Call, the running of the bulls on Wall Street continues. All the major indices closed in the green. The Dow hit another record high after crossing 37,000 for the first time ever yesterday. The S&P 500 just 2% from its all-time high. And the small caps are really on fire. The Russell 2000 posted its best two-day stretch in more than a year. One of the biggest bulls on Wall Street says this could keep going. To me, this, you know, the next 12 months, it seems like small caps can be up 50%. You know, Russell just crossed, the Russell 2000 just crossed 2000 today. So 50%. maybe 50%. Yeah, so it could be Russell 2000 hitting 3000. The 10 year Treasury yield fell below 4%. That's the first time that has happened in four months. Remember, it was floating about 5% in October. And this week's market rally has been so remarkable that bulls aren't only running on Wall Street. One of them was spotted in northern New Jersey today. Did you see this? The bull running on the tracks near Newark's Penn Station. Hey, you know, in a Wall Street world, everybody is watching for the signs and the signals. Superstition and silliness aside, the rally raises a real question. What should you do with your money with the markets at record highs? Let's talk about it with our market panel. Crossmark Global Investment Chief Market Strategist Victoria Fernandez and Carson Group Chief Market Strategist Ryan Dietrich. Good to see both of you today. Victoria, let's start with you. Can we see a broadening out of this rally? We, we heard Tom Lee talking about the Russell 2000. Can we continue a rally without the megas? Well, I think we can continue a rally, at least in the short term, Contessa. I do think the path of least resistance from now till the end of the year is probably higher. And we had some great movement yesterday. You look at the advanced decline, it was plus nine to one. So that breadth is really there. 
I think the issue is going to be once we cross over into the new year, we're going to start having more of the elements um, of the fundamentals hit us. Seasonality is strong right now. Consumers are spending because it's the holidays, but you take that away and we have the 525 basis points. We have a, a weakening in the labor market. We have some of these elements that will start hitting the market more succinctly. And I think it'll be a rougher road. So I'm not sure this is sustainable at this point. You know, we often see that Santa Claus rally closer to the time that we would actually see Santa Claus. Are we just pulling in here all of the good news Ryan, to this fourth quarter? I mean, the good news that we might expect to see very end of the year, beginning of the new year. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good evening. I mean, we could be a little bit, you know, I mean, I just was looking at some of these things. I know I sent you guys the chart that shows historically it's the second half of December that you tend to see the gains. Obviously, this year we've seen gains. I just was looking, though. We're up over 3% on the S&P the first 10 trading days of December. So that's right about the middle of the month. Only five times in history have we been up at least 3% on the 10th day. What happens next? All five of those times, the rest of the year is actually higher, up almost 2% on average. So we're talking a real small slice of time, I'm aware. Been come on with Brian and you you guys for a while, saying we yeah. think this market's going higher, and we still do. One final thing, the breadth, I mean, <laughs> Russell 2000 to 2000, yes, the Russell 2 is up almost 3% the last two days. Go back in history. When the Russell 2 gains almost 3% back-to-back days, you're talking March 2009, you're talking April 2020. It's really rare to see that much buying pressure like that. That's not just an oversold rally to us. It is a kickoff. We think I'm not quite as bullish as Tom is with small caps, but mm-hmm. we're overweight small caps. We've liked them for a while. We still think they're going to lead next year. When you hear all this optimism here, Victoria, and you say, "Mm, yeah, but hold on, hit the brakes a little bit. We did see that sudden reversal in the yields on the 10-year. And in the past, that has sometimes indicated that we're in for a bumpy ride. What other warning signs are you seeing? What else is making you just take a breath and say, hey, let's just let's just wait a bit right here? Yeah, well, some of it is the technicals. You look right now, you've got 44% of the S&P constituents that have an RSI over 70, which means they're overbought. That's a pretty significant amount. We've got tightening lending standards. Anytime we've had a soft landing or a no landing after a hiking cycle previously, uh, lending standards were actually easing, not tightening. So we're the reverse of that. We had negative um, real um revenues in the third quarter versus other soft landings where that was positive. So there's some elements that are out there that I think are working their way through this economy that we haven't quite seen yet. Powell even said we haven't felt the full effects of the hikes that are out there. So I'm not saying the market, you know, is not going to go higher at all. I'm not saying you should crawl into a cave and go to complete cash, but I think you need to be cautious because this move we've seen over the last few days, I think it'll pull back and we'll see yields move a little higher as some of these rate cuts get priced out of the market next year. Look, we're coming out of a period where cash has been king and a lot of people were just sitting on the sidelines Ryan, what would be your best advice right now to viewers at home who are sitting on cash and where could they put it to work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, S&P is looking at the seven-week seven win streak, right? That's one of the longest we've seen in a very long time. And a lot of people were good sitting at 4 or 5% cash, and now you've got stocks up over 20%. So sure, like we just talked about, maybe there could be some mild pullback. I mean, every year is going to have one. So don't just dive right in. But I will say this. The Dow just went more than a year without an all-time high. And as we all know, we just made a new all-time high. I found 12 instances going back to World War II where you go at least one year without an all-time high. What happens after you make that high? 
up a median of 16% a year later, higher 10 out of 12 times. What I'm getting at, one of the most bullish reasons, one of the biggest reasons to be bullish, we haven't had new highs in a long time. We're, we're looking at them, right? They're, they're right there on the S&P and the Dow is there. And we just think with this market broadening out, um, there's still a lot of reasons to think that, you know, we can come back in a year and we think we're going to have, you know, low double digit uh, gains next year and no recession is our base case here. Victoria, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think look at these highs that we're seeing right now and enjoy them because I don't think they're going to stick around for a long period of time. Um, and like I said, be in the markets, right? We're in the markets. We think you need to diversify a little bit across asset classes, have some equity exposure, have some fixed income exposure and lock in some of those um, rates that you still see out there right now. Some of those coupons, we're using options for cash flow. You can go international, but we're doing it with ADRs so we don't have the currency risk with the dollar falling like it has. So use this as a time to really diversify your portfolio and help buffer any volatility that may be coming next year. Victoria Fernandez, Ryan Dietrich, good of you to join us tonight on Last Call. Thank you. Let's take a look at our studs and duds of the day. The biggest winner, Solar Edge Technologies, up 16.6%, along with other solar stocks. We'll have more on that later this hour. The biggest loser, Ameren, down 7.7%. The Midwest Power Company dropped on news that Missouri has scheduled hearings next month for Ameren's building of several solar power plants in the state. Investors are concerned those projects could be in jeopardy. Let's take a look at futures right now. Off of a winning day, we're seeing flattish on the S&P, flattish on the Dow Jones. Looks like the NASDAQ would be set to open up just slightly. Up next, break out the bulk cases of champagne. Why Costco has investors celebrating after hours. Plus, if you build it, they will come. Stocks tied to housing go through the roof. Will the dive in rates trigger a housing boom? Next. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Oh, it's tomorrow's news tonight. The stories we'll be watching tomorrow. First up, an interesting update to a story we first brought you last night. The FCC just gave SpaceX approval for a six-month authorization to run tests for its direct-to-cellular system. It will involve about 2,000 test devices and 840 satellites. In a previous statement about the experimental license, SpaceX said it can, quote, begin testing its transformative direct-to-cell technology which will bring connectivity in areas where terrestrial mobile networks are absent or have been impacted by natural disasters. 
All right, next up, more layoffs at General Motors. The company filed warn notices indicating it will cut more than 1,300 factory workers at two Michigan plants. According to the Detroit Free Press, the automaker says it will offer affected employees jobs elsewhere in the company. And then there's Citigroup. The bank is shutting down its municipal business. Citi reportedly decided the unit is no longer viable given its commitment to increase the firm's overall returns. About 100 employees will feel the impact, according to a person familiar with the matter. Finally, Costco posting earnings after the bell. The company beat expectations and issued a special cash dividend of $15 a share payable in January. Same store sales were up by nearly 4%. Membership fee revenue up also more than 8%. And Costco shares... Well, they're in the green after hours, up by 1.3% in the extended trade. Lennar, one of the nation's largest home builders, hit a new 52-week high today and then announced earnings after the bell. It just beat Wall Street estimates, delivering 19% more homes this year than last. And investors just shrugged, sending the shares negative after hours, down 3.2%. CEO Stuart Miller said... Home buyer sentiment was affected by higher interest rates, but that those buyers responded to incentives that made the homes more affordable. Despite the turn negative in the extended trade, Lennar and most companies tangential to the housing industry saw shares go through the roof. In fact, if it had anything to do with the home, it was likely up. Names like Home Depot, Lowe's, Whirlpool, Masco, paint retailer Sherwin-Williams, all closing in the green, and some of them up noticeably. While those stocks are up, mortgage rates are down, falling to below 7% for the first time since mid-August. Let's see if that shakes up the standoff between buyers and sellers. Let's bring in Daryl Fairweather on this. She's the chief economist at Redfin. Daryl, thank you for joining Last Call. Here we are. We've been stuck in this frozen tundra of a housing market. Is this the spring thaw? This is definitely a good start to a thaw. Mortgage rates are down quite a bit with the Fed news and good reports on inflation. But interest rates are still higher than they were at the beginning of this year. So I think we're going to need to see more improvement for the housing market to truly be in recovery mode. Okay. When I was growing up, I remember my parents looking around and grabbing a mortgage for more than 8%. Is it that If the mortgage rates decline below 7% and we've been used to it for several months, that all of a sudden, hey, maybe 6.5, 6.8, 6.9 doesn't sound so bad. I don't think it's so much a matter of how it sounds, but what is affordable and what buyers are willing to pay. And for a long time, rates were just so high that buyers were sidelined in this market. They couldn't afford these higher mortgage payments. And any amount of relief we get on mortgage rates means that housing becomes more affordable. And these recent changes in rates could mean hundreds of dollars of difference in a monthly mortgage payment. So that's enough to get people off of their off of the sidelines and willing to make an offer. The more creative ways to approach this where maybe sellers are actually sponsoring the mortgage or whether, you know, we heard from Lennar about these incentives to get home buyers through the door. Will we see that continue? I think sellers can help move a deal along if they're willing to offer cash at closing or willing to buy down a buyer's rate. All of that makes it more affordable to the buyer. 
cash helps a lot. I mean, if you're a buyer and you're coming with cash and you can kind of avoid the rate problem by putting down a larger down payment and just borrowing less. And if a seller can help out a buyer there, that really does make a deal easier to seal. The other part of this has been supply that especially uh, entry level housing has been very hard to come by. And you weren't seeing properties being flipped because it was so expensive with labor and materials to then turn a profit. Are we likely to see as money becomes a little bit cheaper, are we likely to see some uh, break in the log jam on that front? Well, I think a major source of the log jam has been the mortgage rate lock-in effect where people were able to get 3% mortgage rates back during the pandemic. And now if they were to move again, they would be facing rates that are much higher. Rates coming down helps a bit with that, but it's still a big gap between where rates are now near 7% and where rates were at 3%. And I think the thing that's actually going to ease the logjam is people just getting sick of the homes that they're in and wanting to move on with their lives. Maybe they have a big event in their life, like a marriage or divorce, and they just really need to move. So truly cabin fever. Daryl, yes. thank you. Still ahead, Disney's activist battle takes a plot twist fit for Star Wars. Will Bob Iger strike back? Stay with us. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back. It's a story fit for an epic movie saga, a proxy battle over Disney and its future, has been one of 2023's most dramatic business stories, it involves Bob Iger, activist investing legend Nelson Peltz, and a cast of powerful characters from across entertainment and Wall Street. And now the story has taken a most unexpected new twist, a twist so dramatic, there was really only one way for us to explain it. Turmoil has engulfed the kingdom of the Walt Disney Company. After a failed attempt to gain a seat on the board, activist investor Nelson Peltz and ousted insider Ike Perlmutter have returned. Sensing weakness, they've joined forces with Jay Rusulo, a former CFO once cast aside to take over Bob Iger's coveted role as CEO. Striking from a secret Wall Street base, Peltz and Rusulo now aim to seize two board seats. Amid a dark era for Disney stock, Iger fights to keep them off the board and bring the kingdom back to a path to prosperity. So will Peltz and Rusulo succeed with their high-stakes plan, and what exactly do they hope to achieve? Joining me now, Wall Street Journal reporter Robbie Whelan a New York Times columnist and CNBC contributor, James Stewart, author of the must-read Disney War. Jim, I start with you. Do you think I have a future as a narrator in any Disney project? Well, I, I'm smiling because that, that was a very clever, that was a very clever introduction. I, I can't take any credit for it. I just do what That's they really tell good. me. I agree. I, yeah, I just do what they tell me to. 
What in the world is it that Nelson Peltz and compadres want from Bob Iger? Uh, Jim, let me start with you. Well, they, what they always say the simplest thing, which is we want the stock price to go up. They want to make money. That's their job. They're activist investors. They take positions in companies. They try to influence management and get the share price, and then they get out. You know, they're not uh, originators. They're not inventing. They don't want to run this thing for the long term. Um, what do, specifically do they want? Um, they haven't really laid out any kind of radical plan for breaking up the company or reorganizing it. They keep talking about operational efficiencies. They're good managers. They know how to run it. And I think bringing on Rizzullo is, is a smart move in the sense that they're going to gain credibility with the big institutional investors who are going to be the key to the outcome of this fight. Robbie, what do you think? Is this a, an issue of personalities clashing and, e and big egos at play here that are playing out maybe a personal battle on a uh, publicly traded company front? Hi, uh, hi, Jim. Nice to see you. I um, yeah, I would say you, there's definitely a little bit of that for sure. There's definitely some big egos at play here, but uh, I, I don't think it's really all about ego. I don't think you know Disney has made a very smart move in that they've tried to sort of portray this whole fight as a personality clash between Bob Iger and Ike Perlmutter. In fact, they said, you know, when that when when Nelson officially announced his first, you know, his second uh, proxy battle, they they noted in their statement that you know they think that Ike Perlmutter who is obviously providing the bulk of the shares in, in Nelson Peltz's war chest, has a, quote, personal agenda against Bob Iger that they think might not be the same agenda that most shareholders have. And um, so that's a, a tactic for sure. But uh, I mean, my understanding is that what Nelson Peltz wants is a return to the days when Disney was a growth company, when Disney was seeing 20% growth per year in revenue, when they were churning out just hit after hit, Frozen and Star Wars movies and Avengers movies that were being plugged into Disney's flywheel, which is sort of the way they, the process they have where they can monetize every piece of content they have over and over. And I think the addition of Jay Rusulo to this campaign is very much in line with, with that goal because Rusulo, when he was CFO, this was what he would talk about with the street. He would go out to Wall Street and say, look, this is Disney's strength. We have franchises. We have um, this incredible advantage over our competitors, which is that we can we can make everything from from ice skating shows to pajamas to theme park rides, and and we can take a piece of content and we can just monetize it over and over again. So that was really his thing when he was at the company, and so I think that's what uh, Peltz and Perlmutter are after in adding them to this effort. You know, uh, CNBC.com's Alex Sherman has a report that Jay Rizzullo put his name behind this statement. Disney has underperformed since Bob Iger was first appointed CEO in 2005, a period during which he has served as CEO or executive chairman for all but 11 months. I mean, those are fighting words, James. Is, is this personal for him? Well, yes, I think it is personal. I think I, I agree with Robbie. They're trying to make this not about personalities, but when you're, you're talking about Disney and all the power and prestige and money that goes with that, it ultimately is a lot about personalities, which was one of the, the themes of my book. But 
this is pretty dramatic in that Jay Rizzullo had always portrayed himself as a kind of an ally of Iger. He was one of the possible successors to Iger. True, he was cast aside, but he always spoke very highly of Iger, said they had a great partnership, worked beautifully together, mm. and until now has been very quiet about what's going on. And this is a very bold shot, shot across the well, board. Do you think he wants uh, the job? Does he, he want Iger? Does he want he Iger's to. job? I don't think he he says he doesn't want it now. He says absolutely. I mean, he clearly did want it. He was in the running. He'd been there 29 years. He was considered a top contender. He got pushed aside, as did, you know, Tom Staggs, who supposedly beat him out for the job. But um, he now says no. He wants to be on the board. He wants to be constructive. He wants to help find a successor. Now, is does he mean that? He might mean it in the moment. But believe me, I've seen this over and over again. Somebody dangles the possibility of being Disney CEO in front of them, and they can't resist. Well, it. yeah, it's, I mean, like who, who's going to say no to that, right? That, that's that. But but the, the the shareholders, the other shareholders, Robbie, if they want two seats, are other shareholders going to get behind that? Can when you when you are reporting this out, does it seem like this sort of back and forth and constant like? taking the headlines away from the business at hand. Um, how, how are other investors feeling about this? That's that's the big question, obviously, is whether or not investors will go for this slate. But I, I think that the another part of the strategy here is that Rizzullo is a guy who, you know, finds his strength in communicating with Wall Street. He's a former CFO. He has a lot of relationships with Wall Street, on Wall Street. And Disney, if you notice, over the last year or so, or at least since Iger returned, has been trying time after time to try and communicate a story of, of strength and positivity to the street, and it's just not been working. And I'm talking about things like launching ESPN Bet, which mm. was their big foray into sports betting. I'm talking about the trial balloons that, that Iger has floated when he went to Sun Valley and said that they were going to sell the linear TV business when he talked about getting a strategic partner for ESPN, all of these things, you know, even, even the more recent moves that seem defensive in the face of uh, Peltz's attack, for example, you know, putting James Gorman and uh, Jeremy Darish on the, on the board, these are, these are big names that are meant to soothe Wall Street, but it's just not work. You'll get a, you, you, you'll get a, a quick bump in the stock price that fades away just as quickly. And the fact remains that uh, Disney's share price is, you know, it's about 40% lower than than where it was two years ago. It's 5% lower almost since, you know, the day one when Iger returned a year ago. So but so what we're looking at is a company that's really failed to find its footing, um, even in the last year, with this legendary CEO back at the helm. And, and they're not finding success in their efforts to, to communicate. This is, this is like, it's like one of those movies where they just leave you with a cliffhanger and it's not, you're like, wait, wait, there's no ending. We're just gonna stop right here and we don't know what's gonna happen. Well, Robbie. With Iger, we've seen in the past, yeah. it's, you know, there's yeah. almost, there's, uh, it's very, very uh, misleading sometimes to sort of think Robbie, that an ending is coming soon. James, thank you, gentlemen. Yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah. Coming up, stocks nearly left for dead, roaring back to life. Is this 2021 all over again? Go away. Welcome back to Last Call. Some of the most heavily shorted stocks on Wall Street are riding the market rally. Take Sonova Energy and SunPower, for example. The solar stocks have jumped more than 15% today, yet both have a third of their outstanding shares shorted. 
Same story on the EV front. Shares of ChargePoint, Plug Power, and Lucid surging today despite being heavily shorted. Names that don't have high short interest are also seeing big runs, of course. From the intraday low on October 30th, Dow component Caterpillar has seen its shares rise 27%. The second here, Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation ETF. It's up 50% from its intraday low from October 30th. Is this a short squeeze or is it speculation? Let's ask seasoned investor Tom Sosna, founder of Tasty Trade, one of the top brokerages in the industry. Thank you for being here on Last Call. Hey, thanks for having me. Tell me what you're seeing. Well, I mean, we're seeing heavy order flow, obviously, but I'm a little hesitant to call this kind of short covering as much as I am to think that it's a little bit more catch up than it is short covering. I, I think the stocks you just mentioned, it's a lot of sector rotation, um, but we're not seeing retail investors necessarily getting involved in these short squeezes. There may be there may be some institutional play there, but I think for the most part, it's more of a game of catch up kind of like missing the move other places and just trying to find anything that looks cheap relative. I, well, and do you think in those cases it's too little, too late? Or is there still room I, to run? I, I think it's a little bit of, it, it reeks of desperation, but, you know, I mean, markets can stay irrational pretty long, so, but it reeks a little bit of desperation. All right. I, I'm also looking at Carvana, up 33% over the past week. Uh, sure. tell, tell me a little bit about where you see the run up making sense and that the catch up trade may actually pay off. Well, catch up trades generally never pay off. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, you know, it's the I mean, you can look at it two ways. You can say, hey, you know what, maybe I'm it's a house of cards and maybe I'm not the last person in. But you can also look at it as, as a very strong sign that the market may be in a period of kind of, you know, capitulation here. And, you know, we've gotten ridiculous. We've reached a very low level of volatility and we've reached, you know, obviously new market highs. So we're when you see the kind of volume we saw today in the options and futures markets, and you see the kind of tape action you're seeing in a lot of the stocks you mentioned in Carvana and stocks like that, um, you know, I, I think you you need to be a little bit more worried about it than you need to be thinking, wow, how much more does that have left to go? You know, after the pandemic started, I guess 2020 into 2021, we saw all this meme craze come out. Sure. I, I did wonder, is, is some of this because we have so much time on our hands and we're sitting at home and we're we're watching the stock charts go back and forth and it's providing us sort of this this entertainment. But are you seeing retail investors now I don't know. Is there anything about this that reminds you of the meme craze that we saw a year and a half, two years ago? I mean, the meme craze was much more speculation driven, I think, out of with limited know-how and, and a lot of boredom, just like you said. I, I think 2023, what we're seeing right now is very different. You know, we're a retail only firm and we're seeing actually a lot of um, the long long investors actually lightening up here, selling into this kind of rally because they know it's a good opportunity. But the crazy thing is the majority of the notional flow, which is kind of you know like all the trading volume in in dollars, um, we're seeing that in 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 derivatives. We're seeing most people you know become more a little more capital efficient. So instead of using kind of the traditional passively investing in stocks. We're seeing much more speculation 
you know, in the option marketplace and in the futures marketplace and futures options. And your best idea for those, I I mentioned it earlier, if we're coming off an era where people are sitting on cash, where should they put it to work? Well, well, right now, obviously, risk-free rates are, you know, let's call them wrapped around 5%, even though they're a little lower today after the last two days. But I think if you're a passive investor, you have to be very concerned about, you know, passive rates, you know, not making that much more than 5, 7, 10%. I think if you're an active trader here, you have to be thinking in terms of, you know, three, two, three or four times passive rates. So I think str- strategic yeah. investors that want to take a shot here, go for it. But if you're a passive investor, you probably want to lighten up. Tom, thank you. Hey, thanks so much. Coming up, stock soaring, polls tumbling. Can President Biden turn around his woes on the economy? Plus, defunding the Ivy League, an anti-Semitism backlash has school endowments in the sights of some lawmakers. Don't go away. Welcome back to Last Call. I'm Contessa Brewer in tonight for Brian Sullivan, and we have a bonus tomorrow's news tonight for you. The New York Post is exclusively reporting on a new congressional effort to defund billion-dollar university endowments. It follows a committee hearing last week about fighting anti-Semitism on college campuses with the presidents of Harvard, UPenn, and MIT. The backlash led to the ouster of Penn president Liz McGill Joining me now is the reporter behind The Scoop, Lydia Moynihan. Lydia, good to see you. How in the world would Congress go about tackling the endowments of Ivy Leagues and other wealthy schools? Well, look, this has really been a watershed moment or so the last week where you see these elite presidents unwilling to condemn the genocide of the Jewish people. And no, I think- I, excuse I- me. Sorry. No, no, no. That was not exactly. That's not right. What they okay. they okay. refused to, it was about speech that they refused to condemn, not the actual genocide of the Jewish people. I, I stand corrected, but there was a very heated back and forth between Elise Stefanik, Republican of New York, basically pressuring them to be very clear and a lot of frustration with a response that a lot of people felt wasn't as strong as it should have been. And as a result of that, you've seen a lot of pressure on the Hill to kind of do something. And so a lot of ideas are floating. Several of the bills that have been proposed um, are from Senators Vance, Senator Cotton, uh, basically saying that we should start taxing these endowments at a much higher rate, at a rate as high as 35%. And this would apply to any university that has an endowment of more than about $10 billion. Um, And that's one of the ideas. Obviously, that's a pretty dramatic idea. It's unclear if that would actually make it past the House or the Senate. But we're also seeing on a local level from even a Democratic state senator in Pennsylvania, he's floating an idea that essentially you would have a bill that would say these universities have to ensure that they limit uh, any sort of anti-Semitic content or or, or hate speech on their campus to get funding. So I'm curious, Lydia, you would would think that fighting anti-Semitism would be a priority among both parties in Congress. Is this the kind of uh, effort that could potentially get bipartisan support? 
Well, it's it's interesting because the first initial sort of knee-jerk reaction are proposals that we're hearing from a lot of Republicans um, saying they want to do something. Uh, Representative Stefanik saying basically she wants to defund the ROT. It's unclear exactly what proposal she is going to introduce as a result of that. But that's the initial rhetoric. But you're absolutely right. And we're hearing both from there's a former trustee who said he wants to see some sort of measure in place. And again, interesting to see at the local level, you see some Democratic senators saying Mm. we need to make sure that any funding is contingent upon universities putting some sort of strictures uh, in place to monitor this. So I think in the last week, obviously, a lot of buzz from Republican lawmakers. But I think the sense that I'm getting from a lot of people on the Hill is that, again, it's been just a week and already see so much action. uh, It suggests that they think something is going to be done because- Lydia, thank We've already you. gained a lot of steam and they expect to see more of it. We really appreciate you bringing your reporting to us, Lydia. Thank you for that. And in the 2024 race, a growing trend in this election is that things are not looking good for President Biden. A new Bloomberg News and Morning Consult poll finds former President Trump leads President Biden in the key battleground state of Michigan after Trump tied with him in the last poll that was done in November. This particular poll is striking because it also shows that Biden has lost ground with union members, even though he joined the picket line, was the first sitting president to do so during the UAW strike in Detroit. And on the economy, specifically, Michigan voters overwhelmingly say they trust Donald Trump more to handle the economy by a margin of 14 percent. Look, it's not just Michigan. In key battleground states across the country, the polling finds former President Trump lands above President Biden in all races, although some of these fall within the margin of error. So statistically, that would be a tie. Why is the Biden economy not really resonating with home stocks and and, and prices surging here? Joining me now is founder and CEO of Built Rewards, Anker Jane, and former Maryland Congresswoman and MSNBC political analyst, Donna Edwards. Uh, You know, we have indications that what the Fed has been doing may work, that what the president has spearheaded with infrastructure may work. So where is President Biden failing to win over voters, Donna? Look, first of all, I think that um, you can see, and you've already reported on your show, there's a real disconnect between the way people are feeling about the economy and their personal economy versus the metrics, the data, Um, that says that the economy is doing really well. Uh, Lowest unemployment that we've had in 50 years. Um, Effectively full employment, as a matter of fact. Um, Biden has created over 14 million jobs just in the time of his his presidency. Um, Inflation is coming down. Interest rates will be coming, coming down. And so by all the metrics, this is a robust economy. And I think that The Biden campaign and President Biden have to do a better job of connecting with voters so that they, you know, really feel what the data is showing. And Ankur, I'm just curious from your perspective, if if Donald Trump wants to keep the momentum going, does he just have to do nothing? (laughs) <laughs> look, it's put, I tell you right now, if you look at, just take a look at the younger generation of people who are voting today, and it tells you a very different story. I mean, we talk about these headline metrics like inflation slowing. 
but prices are still so much higher for young people for just cost of living. And look, we're the ones dealing with student loans with increased rent. And so interest rates are still at an all-time high in the last, you know, in our generation where we've grown up with almost zero interest rates. So now your monthly payments on student loans, on your credit card debt, on your rent are higher than ever. So it's hard to see these headlines saying, oh, the economy is doing well. And then every month you look at your checkbook and your bank account and it's hard to even pay the bills, right? And so I think there's this big disconnect. And unless you find a way to actually address that for young people, I mean, it's gonna be tough to see them reelecting Biden. And look, the age thing is a real consideration too. The, and and clearly, people see it differently. If if age keeps coming up for President Biden and not for former President Donald Trump, there's not that big of an age difference between them. But the communication is clearly an issue. Donna, is there something that that the president can or should be doing differently? Is there something that the Democrats can or should be doing differently? Well, here, first of all, I think Democrats, whether they're in the House and the Senate, uh, really need to run on this economy and to run on the things that they've accomplished around infrastructure and climate change, uh, reducing um, uh, uh, student loans, forgiving student loan debt. Those are things that are real, um, and people won't know about them if you don't if you don't talk about those things. And I think for the president, you know, the president has been caught up on uh, internationally um, with Ukraine and with the Israel Hamas war. I think that the more he gets out there and is in the public, that they will see that he's he may be old, but he is robust and he's on top of um, the issues that concern the American people. So I think it's about being out there, being present, uh, going out to uh, to states, making sure that the vice president uh, Harris is out on the road as well and that he has effective surrogates. Uh, throughout the battleground states and across the country. Yeah, and who and 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 on that point, Anker, who would make effective surrogates? Because clearly, if it's the members of the House and the Senate, and they're talking where where we might hear them, but they're not on TikTok, young people, young voters aren't going to hear them. I mean, listen, I, I had this conversation the other day with with some of your peers, right? I think it is a huge mistake of the Democrats to not embrace TikTok. I think if you look at where people are getting information. I mean, I'll tell you, you open TikTok these days and you see every clip of Biden struggling to present some of these topics to young voters. And I think whether or not you agree on the macro, that is a reality of this election. And so I think, look, there is not enough focus on how we are helping present a brighter economic future for this generation. We are not giving people a clear, clear path to lower rents. We are not giving people clarity on how we're going to help their student loans. I mean, Yes, they passed a small, small relief plan that, you know, the Congresswoman just referenced, but that only impacted a small number of people. And really for those who have had student loans outstanding for 20, 25 years, for the most part. So when you think about someone coming out of school today and looking yeah. at it, it is so hard to afford life right now. And I think people are looking for a change. They want to figure out how am I going to put money in my bank account at the end of the month? Uh, Anker, thank you for coming on with us. Congresswoman Edwards, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Coming up, tipping's breaking point. Americans may finally have maxed out. We'll show you next. Welcome back to Last Call. Tipping backlash is upon us. And everybody has noticed the trend where, you know, you're just being asked to fork over a few extra dollars, 
but in seemingly every transaction. Some customers, it seems, are just fed up. According to data from Gusto, tips for service sector workers in non-restaurant jobs have declined 7% in the past year. That averages out to about $1.28 an hour compared to $1.38 last year. And at the same time, tips at restaurants have gone up 8% according to Square from last year. So it's not that Americans are tired of tipping in general. They're just tired of being asked to tip everywhere. This recent tipping backlash was highlighted by the Wall Street Journal. Joining me now is the writer behind the piece, consumer trends reporter for the journal, Rachel Wolf. Rachel, good to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. Is it is it really about just seeing it everywhere? People are overwhelmed by what they see as relentless requests for gratuity. They are sick of these requests popping up in places that they never used to exist, from the dry cleaners to bridal boutiques and even self-checkout counters. And they are tired of what they say is an effort to supplement workers' compensation. And, it, and in some ways, do you think that customers think they're being asked to pick up the slack that employers are responsible for, that it's the employer's job to pay workers a minimum wage and a fair wage in many cases, and that customers just don't want to be the ones that are responsible for a living wage. Exactly. They don't understand why companies can't afford to pay their workers enough to live on and don't get why they have to be the ones who are what they describe as guilted into it. They don't want to have to think about workers not being able to provide for their families after every transaction, they want that guarantee. They say that they would actually rather pay more for their goods and services if it meant they knew that workers were going to be provided for. What's crazy here is that here you have a federal minimum wage that still stands at only $7.25. And that, and I'm looking at, from your reporting, that the federally tipped minimum wage that many bar and restaurant workers earn is $2.13 an hour. So so the, these guys really do requ require the tips to make a wage that's livable. Why do you think that we're so much more willing in a restaurant to do it? I think that people understand that they're receiving a service in a restaurant. As certain hospitality groups have tried in the past to do away with tips at restaurants, you know, we still see some establishments that do it with varying degrees of success. But most of the consumers I talk to really don't mind tipping where they've always tipped. What they resent is the tip creep that's coming up yeah. in, in restaurant settings. People get that servers rely on this money. Uh, and for me, the pet peeve is people who don't tip the housekeepers in the hotels because those people work harder than anybody else. Rachel, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You know what happened 46 years ago today? An iconic movie made its world premiere and it became a pop culture juggernaut. John Travolta's dance moves in Saturday Night Fever. It's inspired my floor director. You should have seen him. Like, he was just cutting loose. The Bee Gees disco movie soundtrack, a big hit. In fact, it was the best-selling soundtrack of all time until, what do you think pushed it off? 
Whitney Houston's The Bodyguard knocked it from the top spot 15 years later. But anyway, Saturday Night Light Fever was, I almost said Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Fever was a blockbuster hit. According to the numbers, it banked more than $282 million at the global box office. And now even the kids are singing it. That does it for last call tonight. We'll be back tomorrow. Shark Tank is up next. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.